I would call this a powerful exhortation this morning. That's, that's our goal. It's a little bit solemn. Uh, it's a responsibility uh, if we are believers. Um, but this morning what we're doing is uh, we're looking out. It's, uh, we have our, th- uh, our three banners over here describing uh, the look philosophy that we have here at Fellowship Oshawa. Uh, and today's uh, sermon is entitled, Look Out, Sharing the Gospel. I'm going to read a quote, um, and I want you to consider where you would have to be uh, in, your, in your heart, uh, where you'd have to be spiritually, mentally, to be able to say these things. It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted the communists' terms. It was a deal. We preached, and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us. So everyone was happy. I want you to think about where you have to be to be able to say that with sincerity. Richard Wurmbrand was a Christian minister in Romania who publicly stated that communism and Christianity were not compatible and as a result spent 14 years in communist prisons being tortured and witnessing others being tortured for their faith in Christ. In fact, that was the title of the book he wrote, Tortured for Christ. What motivates a man to such an extent that his passion for sharing the gospel with the lost would drive him to count the privilege as more than compensation for the beating he would receive at the hands of his captors? Over the past several weeks, we've been going through our Look series and how this shapes our lives and priorities here as a church in Oshawa. First, we considered looking up. Understanding the message of the gospel should cause us to respond in worship to God, to develop a consistent, intimate relationship with Him in prayer and meditation, as well as looking to Him for wisdom, for peace, and for strength. Then we discussed looking in, where we considered the importance of community. We recognize the value of discipleship, of unity within the church of growth in our individual and our corporate lives together. And finally, we've been considering looking out. We consider the community all around us, the practical as well as the spiritual needs that exist for our neighbors, for our coworkers, for our friends and family. Today, we're going to look specifically at our mandate to share the truth, beauty, and power of the gospel with those around us whom the Bible teaches are on their way to an eternity separate from God and suffering the punishment for their sin. So the first question that came to my mind was, why? Why share the gospel? We're going to take a look at Romans chapter 10. I would encourage you to follow along uh, in a Bible. There are Bibles on the table. If you are using the Bibles on the table, then we're on page 551. Romans chapter 10, verses 8 to 14. And Paul is speaking here, writing to the believers in Rome, and he says, oops. He says the following. 
In verse 8, he says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's the promise, the promise of the gospel. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So there's an important passage that Paul references. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And here's a second reference he makes. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. These are Old Testament passages that he brings to light. But then he throws the believers this. He says, how then will they call on him? That passage we just read. How will they do that? How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And previously talking about everyone who believes, how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? It's really simple, isn't it? You can't call on Jesus if you've not believed in him. You can't believe in Jesus if you've never heard of him. And you can't hear about Jesus if no one ever tells you. Every one of you, every one of you is here today because someone took the time to share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe it was a parent or a grandparent. Maybe it was a coworker or a neighbor or a friend. Maybe it was some crazy Texan who left his home where it was warm to move to the great white north and come knock on your door and share with you what God so graciously did for him and is willing to do for you. <laughs> However it happened, and regardless of what phase of response you're in, it is glaringly obvious that you wouldn't be here, I wouldn't be here, if someone hadn't faithfully shared their faith with you in some way or another. Second question that came to mind as I considered this, this uh, topic, who? Who should share the gospel? Okay, so we, we recognize that sharing the gospel is important. That's how we communicate the faith to others. But who's responsible to do it? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 28. Again, if you're using the Bibles on the table, page 487. It'll also be on the screen, of course. Matthew 28. And again, I would encourage you, if you have a Bible of your own, to follow along because what it does is it makes you more comfortable and more proficient working your way through the Scripture, becoming familiar with where these passages are. Matthew chapter 28 in the Bibles on the table is in the bottom right-hand corner. We're looking at verse 19. And this is Jesus speaking, and he says, "'Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you.'" And the promise with that, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the mandate is clear. The instruction from Jesus himself is unmistakable. This isn't just Paul's interpretation of things. This is Jesus himself speaking and making it clear that the gospel needs to be spoken, that we need to go and we need to make disciples. But the question then becomes, to whom was he speaking? Was it to men with the gift of evangelism? Sometimes that's an easy one, isn't it? Oh, I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I'll just keep quiet. 
Was it to those who are teachers and preachers? No. Let's look back at verse 16. Verse 16 starts off, Now the disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, etc., 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 and Jesus came and said to them. So who's the them? It was the disciples. So the question is this. You have to understand that at this point, the gifts, uh, the spiritual gifts had not yet been defined. We've been talking about those in previous weeks. Those didn't come about till, till later, right? Um, they hadn't even been distributed, right? That came later at Pentecost. So looking back at verse 16, when we see the disciples went to Galilee and Jesus said to them, Jesus was speaking to his disciples. Are you a disciple of Jesus? If you're a disciple... A follower. Remember, a disciple really comes from the same root word as discipline. So you're a, you're a trainee, if you will. All right. And at that time in history, um, teachers in general, I'm a teacher, um, but I don't go live in my students' houses and they don't come and live in mine either. That would be kind of awkward all around. Uh, but at that time, only the rich had the opportunity to be taught uh, by a teacher. And so quite often you would have people like Aristotle, Pythagoras, Plato, Jewish rabbis, and these young people would be connected to them, and there would usually be a financial cost involved, and sometimes that teacher would live in the home of the student, and sometimes the students would live in the home of the teacher, but they would follow that teacher around and learn from them, and they would train under them. They would discipline themselves according to the instruction of the teacher. So a disciple is one who trains under a teacher, and that's exactly what we are. And our teacher is Jesus. And the Word of God teaches us, and the Holy Spirit speaks into us, and teaches us, and trains us how to become more Christ-like, not in our own strength, but in His. So if you are a disciple of Jesus, then He's speaking to you. And that may make some of you uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. I'll be completely honest with you. It does. It's not complicated to figure out, it's just that we're uncomfortable with it, so we try to justify it away. And I've been there and I've done that. But our reluctance or even refusal to share the gospel with those around us, whether it's in our neighborhood, our workplace, or whatever sphere of influence we're placed in, it means that we're okay with the possibility that the person beside us could face an eternity in hell simply because we were afraid to be uncomfortable. That's really it. If we're going to be honest with ourselves, that's it. We're okay to just let them go. We're somehow going to shift the responsibility off our shoulders. Some, well, you know, they're sinners, right? Uh, hello, so are we. We were sinners too. And someone stepped out of their comfort zone and shared with us out of a love for us and for the Savior. What if Jesus had desired comfort and glory? more than our redemption and salvation, where would we be then? Our ultimate example is Jesus himself, who left heaven and said, no, no, this is okay. What does the scripture say? Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He said, that's okay. This is worth it. You, you are worth it. I will go to that cross because the joy of the possibility of having you as mine, is worth it. That's what was done for us. This is incredibly serious, my friends. 
sharing the gospel is not optional. God has a heart for the lost, and if we are unwilling to share the gospel with the lost all around us, then maybe we really aren't children of God. Maybe we need to question the reality of our own salvation. Where's our heart at? Do we have a heart like Jesus? Because if we do, his heart was for the lost, and ours needs to match that. Now, I'm not saying that we can't be in a position where we start to learn these things and that we grow into this. But you have to take a step. As a young person in my late teens, I was caught up with the question of, what is God's will for my life? We wrestle with these things. And it's fairly common. Lots of, lots of young people do that. Where would I go to university? What would I study? What career path should I follow? Who would I marry? In retrospect, I realize now that those questions, which I had made such a high priority at the time, were really rather inconsequential. Most of them ended up getting answered in ways I never expected, and often when I wasn't even looking for an answer. So all my fuss and bother about it was really a waste of time and energy, to be honest. Folks, if you want to know what God's will for your life is, if you really want to know God's will for your life, what he designates as truly important, well, we just read it. More than anything, he wants us to obey his command to go and mirror his love for the lost. The rest, it's just details, really. It may be hard for some of you to see in the place where you're at right now, but the job that you do, the person that you marry, those kinds of things, they're not all that important in the big scheme of things, in God's perspective of things. And that's the hardest thing we have I have spent some time talking with people and, and discussing the difference between our perspective on things and God's perspective on things. And it's challenging. It's challenging to stop and say, no, 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 the way I'm looking at things is limited because I'm a limited human being. I need to start trying to line up with the way that God looks at things. And I need to have his perspective on the story that's going on all around us. Last question, how? How should we share the gospel? I'm going to ask you to turn to the Old Testament. It's not really what we normally think of as the place to go and look for ideas on how to share the gospel, um, but I think it's, it's significant nevertheless. We're going to go to 2 Kings. Again, in the Bible's on the table, it's page 178. 2 Kings chapter 6. This was a terrible time in the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was at this point divided. It had been one nation, and now it was broken apart. And so there was a, a, a bunch of the tribes that were together as, I think they were called the nation, the nation of Judah, and then the other was the nation of Israel. All right. So in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24, it says this, Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the nation of Israel at that time. And there was a great famine in Samaria, a walled city, as they besieged it until a donkey's head. And a donkey was an unclean animal. You have to understand that. A donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver. 
and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now, I don't know how much a cab is. I don't know how much a fourth of a cab is. All I know is somebody was paying five shekels of silver for dove poop. (laughs) That gives you an indication of how bad it was. We kind of chuckle about it a little bit, but the reality is it was terrible conditions. So much so, actually I'm getting ahead of myself, sorry. The nation of Israel was in quite a pickle. The powerful king of Syria had brought his entire army. Now there had been forays before and he had sent portions of his army, but this time he meant business and he sent his entire army. And he was one of the superpowers of the world at that time, Ben-Hadad. And he had surrounded the entire walled city of Samaria, and there was no going out, and there was no coming in. This was often a problem, and if you could find a place, when you were establishing cities, you tried to find a place maybe where there was a spring, and you built your city around that, because at least you had your own supply of water. Otherwise, uh, a siege lasted very short, because there was no water inside. People just gave up, because without water, you're in serious trouble. All right, But now, the food had all been eaten up. And, and Jehoram, the king of Israel, was actually inside the city. So this was even more serious, right? If we can shut this place down and we can get the king, we've got the nation. It's over. That's, that's Ben-Hadad's whole ploy here. It got so bad that the next verses describe a dispute where one woman, one woman had boiled her infant son so that she and another woman could eat him. And now the second woman was refusing to do that for the two of them. And so this first woman calls out to the king for justice. Can you imagine how terrible things have to be that this somehow sounds like a solution to the problem? And this woman isn't even seeming to be really upset about the whole issue of of the children. She's talking to the king about how unfair it is that this woman isn't doing her part. And the king is just broken over the sad state of affairs of his people, and he feels so helpless in this situation. Then Elisha the prophet declares that the Lord would rescue his people the next day in a miraculous way. In fact, he says, the next day, stuff's going to be, you know, on sale, like Walmart, you know. Um, Bread, going to be no problem. Food, no problem. It's going to be back to normal prices tomorrow. And in fact, one of the officers goes, like, that'll never happen in a million years. And Elisha actually tells that officer, you'll see it. You'll just never get to benefit from it because you doubted the word of the Lord. So let's continue reading over in chapter 7. We're going to start at verse 3. There were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? Like this is pointless. If we say, let's enter the city, well, the famine's in the city, and we're going to die there. And if we sit here, we'll die also. Come on, let's go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, well, the worst that can happen is that we're going to die. We're going to die anyway. So we've got nothing to lose is what they're saying. Let's go. Let's see if we can find some mercy with the Syrians, and maybe we can get some food. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. 
For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they all said to one another, The king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and they fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and they ate and they drank and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and they went and buried it. You know, oh, this is great, right? They're, they're, they've scored big time. And then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it as well and went and hid them. It's like, woohoo, right? And then they said to one another, we're not doing right. This isn't good. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us for sure. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. We're going to stop there. That's sufficient. I love how the lepers were convicted in their hearts about the fact that they were enjoying this amazing blessing. It was like party time with the biggest feast you could imagine. All the food, and there's only four of them. Right? And this was a massive army, so there, were, there was probably quite a supply train that had come along with it. And all of a sudden they realized, you know, we are doing this, and our friends, our family, our neighbors, our countrymen are living in fear and hunger. As far as they know, the army's still out here. As far as they know, there's going to be nothing to eat, and they're either going to die or they're going to have to give up. It is wrong, wrong for us to be enjoying this blessing and not including them in it. So they were moved to go and tell the people the good news. Friends, we are those lepers. We have been blessed beyond measure. We have been shown a love far greater than we could ever deserve. The love of our Father God who is willing to give His Son to redeem us. And He longs for our friends, our family, our neighbors, our countrymen to hear the same good news of the gospel. He longs to redeem them and set them free to satisfy their hunger, their internal hunger, to remove their fear and give them rest and peace. That's his heart. And he chooses to do so through us, through you and through me. How can we possibly hold back from telling them for the sake of our fear or discomfort? Where is our heart like Jesus? As a child, I learned a, a song, um, and it talked about being a light. And there's a little refrain, you in your small corner and I in mine. It doesn't matter if we are big and influential. Most of us aren't. We live quiet little lives in our neighborhoods, and we work with some people, and we interact with some people at the grocery store or wherever it is. That's not the point, because the work isn't ours either. God isn't calling us to save people. We can't. We are incapable of doing that. That is the Holy Spirit's work. God calls us to be faithful. That's it. Be faithful and share the good news with those around you. Love them. This is not a, oh, checked it off on my checklist for the week. Yes, I'm a good Christian. I shared the gospel today. That is not what it's all about. Not at all. This is a perspective where in our hearts we recognize we don't do right by keeping this to ourselves. Our people, 
the ones in our sphere of influence, they are in fear and in hunger spiritually. They need the gospel, and we have it. Martin Luther said, we are all mere beggars telling other beggars where we found bread. I'm sure he was referencing this story. How do we share the gospel? We share it with humility and compassion, driven by a heart of love. We don't go out there telling them this because we're so good and we got it and, you know, you could be good like me. It's not like that at all. We have to really consider ourselves as beggars too, so unworthy of the gospel, but nevertheless recipients of it. Why? Not because of us, because of God's great grace that he demonstrated in Jesus Christ. We are just beggars after all with no resources of our own. It's only through the exceeding riches of God's grace in kindness toward us, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, that we have received this great salvation. We must passionately believe that need. Oh, sorry. We must passionately believe that this salvation we have is great and glorious, and we must passionately love the lost that need to hear about it as we delight to obey the one who loved us enough to die to purchase it for us. Think about Richard Wormbrunt, whose quote I started with. That he counted the cost and said, we decided that it was worth it to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. And so we accepted their terms. Will you accept the terms? Will you go for it regardless of the cost? Because of the great privilege that God has given you? He has called you in your small corner to be his mouth, his hands, his feet, speaking the message of peace and salvation to the people that you interact with. Let's just close in prayer. Father, as we, as we stand here or sit here, and as we think about the, the lyrics of the songs that we sung to begin with, as we've considered your greatness and the, the incredible grace that's been poured out on us, how undeserving we are, and as we have come to understand your love for us, a love that was willing to give your son, and that your son loved us enough to go all the way to that wretched cross, to be hung between heaven and earth, to be nailed to that place, to be scorned and spurned and spit on and beaten, and to suffer the punishment from a holy God for us, for us. As perhaps we stood there too and continued to spit on him, he loved us nevertheless. We think of his words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That was his heart toward us, a heart of compassion. May we have a heart like yours, Father. May we be recognized as children of God with that same heart for the lost, that same passion to reach those who are hungry and alone and fearful. May we share with them the good news of the gospel. Regardless of their response to it, that is not our responsibility. The Holy Spirit will take that. And who knows who knows, when we get to eternity, when we get to heaven, perhaps there will be someone that we thought was rejecting it at the time we shared it, and over time, the Holy Spirit worked that out, and that seed, that seed that was planted germinated in a heart, and someone came to accept Jesus as their Savior. Father, we don't want to do it for 
for, for kudos or rewards for ourselves. We want to be able to give that back to you. And in a small measure, we might say thank you for all that you have done for us. The extent to which we're willing to go is, is a measure of the extent to which we understand the great grace that was given to us. Father, may we have that same passion. Build that fire in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' precious name.